0: Three, Three, two, two one, go. let's go! Oh, <laughs> Stan, coming in hot. Uh, I'm your host of the PB Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer. And uh, today we get to sit down with Stan the Man Keith from Magnum Kim Research Institute and Evan Brown, who I'm going to allow to introduce himself here in a second. We are talking about kind of the state of the industry And what's happened in really since 2019 and this idea of kind of looking back at the unconventional plays and how much money went into that, the development of that, the understandings, the learnings from that, applying it now to what appears to be a a really good opportunity for growth in our industry, for money to be coming back in to explore with new technologies and new ideas and maybe new areas or go to old areas with new ideas and start finding the oil that are uh, the, the world is desperately in need of and the demand is climbing. So, uh, Evan Brown, sir, quick introduction oh. of who you are.
1: Oh, well, thanks so much uh, for having me. Uh, my name is Evan Brown. I'm a petroleum geoscientist. Uh, I'm one of the uh, – I've been called uh, Snow Mexican by some of the roughnecks here. I'm a Canadian who is now working in the, the, the Permian. Uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada. I uh, went to school at Saint Mary's and University. I, I, um, I've been in the industry since 2008. Uh, you know, gone through just about every job a geologist can have in the industry. Uh, worked almost every play from uh, the Mackenzie Delta all the way down in here into Texas. And uh, I've been one of the very, very, very lucky few who's had. Uh, an opportunity to work on both sides of the borders. This episode
0: of PBE Podcast is brought to you by our friends at GeoLog. GeoLog offers cost-effective lab quality, quantitative real-time formation evaluation and reservoir characterization solutions to improve well-placement, production forecasting, and optimizing of completions. They even have a service that can monitor bitware while drilling. I've actually utilized their services while drilling wells in the Permian Basin, and we were highly impressed with the data acquisition process and the quality of the interpretations. These guys at Geolog are passionate about the data they collect each day at every well site. They've been doing it for 40 years. They are passionate about drill cuttings, passionate about mud gas data, passionate about what the data means and how the data can add value to an asset. They probably collect the most amount of drill cuttings and mud gas data globally each day of any privately owned surface mug logging company. Geolog always employ a consistent, quantitative analytical methodology, whether on the well site or back at the lab. So data collected at one well can be compared in another well. We'll be doing a podcast with Dr. Guy Oliver, Geolog's Director of Energy Transition and Data Science, who will be talking more about what Geolog does and diving more into the types of data they collect. This episode is brought to you by Atlas, Atlas is the Permian Basin's leading maintenance and repair service center. We provide full-service bumper-to-bumper maintenance, repair, and diagnostics for all makes and models of the most in-demand cars, trucks, and SUVs. We also provide the same full-service solutions to keep your fleet running and 100% DOT compliant. Our pump division also provides the industry with the shortest turnaround times, keeping your transfer and injection pumps in the field where they belong our technicians and staff are eager to work with you and are willing to do what you need when you need it. Parts, service, and a desire to exceed your expectations are what set us apart from the rest. Call Atlas today at 432-245-5858, 432-245-5858. or visit us at www.atlas-ustx.com.
1: And yeah, it's uh, it's been an exciting time here in Texas and uh, learning the Permian. And uh, I've been more than uh, happy to share my experiences with people uh, about what uh, I've learned and done in Alberta and what I can bring down to Texas and what we can all learn together.
0: Well, man, that's, that's a good segue into these, these couple of papers. You have Reservoir Uncertainty and the M&A Market PDF that you uh, sent along. Is this something you wrote or is this, was this more of a reference?
1: Uh, This is something that uh, I put together uh, with uh, kind of an inspiration of listening to uh, a podcast by Adam Watrous and uh, talking to some people about this industry. Uh, I actually picked up uh, a young uh, software engineer who was looking for a mentor, this uh, really brilliant kid who had worked for Google and wanted uh, a mentor in the oil and gas industry and somehow came across me. And so... We talked a bit, and I said, well, let's put together a little something and talk about the state of the industry. And uh, I put together this paper, and he assisted me. Nice. And then that kind of uh, segued into another paper that I wrote for the CSEG, uh, which uh, is about uh, geostatistics and the, uh, the geostatistical tool, the variogram, which um, can be you know, very, very useful for understanding spatial continuity and, uh, well, whatever, uh, you're looking at in, uh, subsurface. Right so, on. And uh, they can reach yeah. out.
0: They can reach out to you at Evan at expert. What is this? Expert. Expert in research. Expert in, research. Expert in research.com. Yeah. Evan at expert in Absolutely. And that's where they, and, and obviously LinkedIn, you can reach out there and, and grab a couple of these papers. You're handing out these like, uh, like cheek huh?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I finally I finally found some time, and I, I've got a couple more in the works uh, with some people in Calgary. And really, uh, what I'm trying to do is more than anything is just you know get people thinking, get people talking. Like I don't consider myself you know a, an expert really in anything. I, I'm more curious than anything, and you know if I can start a conversation or if I can really um, Get people thinking about things and improving the state of petroleum geoscience and in the industry. Then you know that's fantastic. More than anything, you know, I, I want people, especially young geoscientists, to know that you've got a, you know a place in this industry, and you know, just because it's you know can be a little bit of a struggle at first and everything like that, that don't assume that uh, you're not needed and that uh, you you don't have something to bring to the table because you absolutely do, and more so in the future.
0: Right on, man. I agree. I will agree with that I'm hopping on the train and uh, I'm excited to be on that with you and with others. And, uh, we're rolling, man, we're rolling forward and we have new ideas. We have revolutionary technologies. Like it's, it's here and it's now, and it's exciting. And, uh, I totally agree with you. So, uh, let's pass it over to Stan from, uh, from your perspective and and kind of all the things we've covered and, and generally talked about what dropped out for you, Stan.
2: Well, I'm, I, I got some more questions about this Montanoe thing. Where exactly is this outcrop?
1: Uh this outcrop here you're yeah.
2: looking at? Yeah, well, that's in that's, Nova Scotia.
1: Yeah, Nova Scotia, Canada. So if you look at a, a map of a geology map West of Nova Bay. Scotia, what you'll see is there's a lot of terrains kind of smashed together. Mm-hmm. And it's structurally um, you know, it, it can be structurally quite complex. And Nova Scotia geology is really wonderful. And, you know, I grew up there. It's a beautiful place. Um, the, uh, that there is, I think on the Bay of Fundy. So okay. I, uh, if you look, you'll probably see, um, yeah, you can zoom in there. I'll, I'll be able to tell you. So you zoom in on Nova Scotia, which is, yeah, you you can find out and then go a little bit. No, you want to go see there's Quebec, So go east. Okay, so you see a little thing sticking out in Atlantic there?
0: Mm-hmm. Zoom in on that. This
1: thing? Uh, that No, that's Anacostia Island, but uh, you're close. Go down a little bit south. Little, that's New Brunswick and a little bit south further. There you go, Nova Scotia. So there you go. And you can see there's a major fault running through there that separates two terrains. Right. So right the Tabloco-Shedderbucked the fault there.
0: Woo! It notice- goes all the way down to the Appalachians, man. Yeah, this is a... This is cool.
1: Yeah. Nova Scotia is a pretty interesting geology. And the offshore geology tells a really special story about the uh, the birth of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, some of the hydrocarbon discoveries that have happened in the Nova Scotia offshore, you can actually see the analogs in the onshore of Morocco, because those were two, you know, that's where the, uh, the rifting actually began. And so some of the, um, post-drift uh, carbonates in the Jurassic that are uh, offshore Nova Scotia are now onshore uh, parts of uh, Morocco, if I believe. So, yeah, so this, uh, if you want, the outcrop the that you're looking at will be towards your north. And, yeah, so you see the area around the with the little pink in there? That's from the Bay of Fundy. It's famous for its high tides. Right. So the, the succession that you're looking at is somewhere along that shoreline there, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh that would be the, uh, from what it looks like, uh, the sub subbasin, which is a subbasin of um, the larger Maritimes basin. And that actually sequence uh, is followed by the Windsor Group carbonates, which if, I'm not sure if anybody watches, but that's, um, it stretches, those carbonates stretch down into that area. And I happen to think it's just a old sinkhole from, uh, uh, i could be wrong
0: (laughs) your audio kind of broke up there what'd
1: you say it was a sinkhole from what uh uh some of the reefs in the carboniferous that um where it became karsts. wow but
0: uh Um, yeah okay well cool outside of uh yeah yeah, you what else Stan? besides that outcrop
2: well uh, (laughs) you guys took over the conversation but uh the little brown lamp layers in there. What what kind of rock are those? <laughs> in your picture.
1: Um, let me see here. Let me those see guys.
2: If I can find yeah. Uh,
1: those. Good question. It looks like those might be uh, little uh, little sandstone uh, fans in the uh, lacustrine delta. So that would be like Horton Group. So I, I would suspect those are little uh, delta front sands. Uh, prograding out into the deeper
2: uh portion of the lake okay uh, the- any dolomites in this stuff oh uh, i don't think there's too much dolomite
1: in that In that however the the sequence that is above it um so when the the basin started to open up and it was flooded what you had was uh, a group of rocks called the windsor group and those uh, contain actually fairly significant amounts of uh, dolomite and limestones. Uh, and those are uh, elsewhere in the basin. But, um, yeah, this is mostly, from what I can tell, is all the lacustrine fasces And my father would know this better than almost anyone. I mean, he goes for hikes and just looks at rocks now that he's
0: retired. Nice. He needs to but, start breaking some of that stuff off. Let's send it to the lab and look at its elemental makeup.
1: Oh, he... Uh, He's actually already on that. (laughs) Let's go.
0: I want to see the data, Dad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, he's... uh, I've actually got him looking at getting some uh, geochemistry work done on some oil-soaked core that the government of Nova Scotia had pulled in the late 1980s. And it's just, you know, not a huge amount of paper, 12 feet of oil-soaked core. And, you know, from a... Let's
0: look at
1: it. yeah it's like i'll say where's the soil sourced from nobody knows i mean right. when you create a play concept the first thing you need to do is answer where is the soil coming from you know <laughs> and uh if you can answer that you're off to the races
2: right on man well that leads into my sort of final question you said okay geology is going to be the answer okay what revolutions in geology do you think are going to be the most uh, important because you've been talking very generally to this point. All right.
1: Okay. So, aside from uh, using machine learning and uh, direct hydrocarbon indicators, uh, I think I think the job as a geologist is going to blend more into like a petroleum geoscientist. And this is this is kind of where things have been going for a while. But the next, it's going to be a lot more data science. It's going to be a lot more uh, uh, data visualization. To uh, understand a lot of the um, the intersections between uh, facies, uh, rock fabric, and uh, rock mechanical strength, uh, rock mechanics. This area here is kind of like it was. I had you know mentioned that we're being asked to answer questions we didn't even know exist, and I think a lot of geologists, the blind spot that we had was uh you know rock physics uh, geomechanics and how that ties into the depositional facies, and really uh the chemical makeup on the rock and the in-situ stra- stress and the yeah. pore pressure and everything related to that that's an area that was a kind of a weak spot for me early on in my career i mean wow, well, yeah had, I, think I, it's, I had no idea
0: i think it's pretty weak across the board like you know, we have the technology now that we can go into an outcrop like this and and really map out the elemental differences. You know, the, the no shit, like what is the chemistry of each one of these layers? How does it change its density? All that stuff can be mapped out and then you can tie it to some cool uh, drone that has the ability to run all these images on and do like spectral analysis tied to the chemistry. And you can, you can see outcrops in a completely new way, in a much more specific, detailed way of, you know, what it's actually made out of. How do the, how do the hydrocarbon markers change through this rock? How do the elements change through this rock? And then, you know, how is it related spatially in the whole outcrop? These are the kinds of things that we need to progress. These are the kinds of things that we need to come, come with an open mind and with a budget and and work out the details. It's going to be chaotic. You can imagine looking at this outcrop and then you're saying you're going to get elemental makeup and how it changes on all these layers. And then you're going to tie that to a, an image that's tying in that this this black stuff is associated with your carbon rich versus the carbon poor in the gray. Like, okay, all this chaos is going to come out of this, but we're eager and we're excited. And we actually have you know the ability to understand What's going on in this complexity a little bit, and and we are going to make these discoveries, man. Your dad's looking right into the future in this picture.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, at the uh, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, it's uh, it's going to what is going to promote success is uh, geoscientists uh, embracing as much of you know the digital world as we can. Uh, but not forgetting our roots. Right. And the biggest thing, you know, is go look at outcrops, go look at this, understand how things change in, in a 3d space. Right. Yeah. Cause if you can do that, um, you're, you're ahead of the game as a geoscientist. Right. And, you know, you can look, you can look at an outcrop and you can, you know, you can just see so much, uh, heterogeneity in it. Right. Oh yeah. And, not and just looking at that, you know it, it, you can you know just start formulating questions, and even if you have no idea what the answer might be, you know it's like what what are these layers here, right? You know, then you can branch off on these, like how do these layers uh, impact fluid flows? How do they impact uh, Uh, your stress regime, right? You know, how do these, or faults that you can't see on seismic, which will impact Mm -hmm. your stress Mm -hmm. regime Mm -hmm. or impact your fluid migrations, which are diagenetic, right? And this
0: episode of PBE Podcast is brought to you by our friends at GeoLog. GeoLog offers cost-effective, lab-quality, quantitative, real-time formation evaluation and reservoir characterization solutions to improve well-placement, production forecasting, and optimizing of completions they even have a service that can monitor bitware while drilling i've actually utilized their services while drilling wells in the permian basin and we were highly impressed with the data acquisition process and the quality of the interpretations these guys at geolog are passionate about the data they collect each day at every well site they've been doing it for 40 years They are passionate about drill cuttings, passionate about mud gas data, passionate about what the data means and how the data can add value to an asset. They probably collect the most amount of drill cuttings and mud gas data globally each day of any privately owned surface mug logging company. Geolog always employ a consistent, quantitative analytical methodology, whether on the well site or back at the lab. So data collected at one well can be compared in another well. We'll be doing a podcast with Dr. Guy Oliver, Geolog's Director of Energy Transition and Data Science, who will be talking more about what Geolog does and diving more into the types of data they collect. This episode is brought to you by Atlas, Atlas is the Permian Basin's leading maintenance and repair service center. We provide full-service bumper-to-bumper maintenance, repair, and diagnostics for all makes and models of the most in-demand cars, trucks, and SUVs. We also provide the same full-service solutions to keep your fleet running and 100% DOT compliant. Our pump division also provides the industry with the shortest turnaround times, keeping your transfer and injection pumps in the field where they belong our technicians and staff are eager to work with you and are willing to do what you need when you need it. Parts, service, and a desire to exceed your expectations are what set us apart from the rest. Call Atlas today at 432-245-5858 or visit us at www.atlas-ustx.com. Evan, you reached out to the PB podcast. Uh, you had you said you know review some of this work and let me sh- let me hear some of your thoughts. Uh, you sent a couple of papers and a reference to a podcast back in 2020, um, and uh, and it's about kind of mergers, acquisitions, how things changed structurally for the oil and gas business. If, if I'm understanding this correctly, and you can, you certainly can correct me because you're the expert. But when we went horizontal, and when we figured out that we can go horizontal for a good mile, now up to three miles long, and we can frack, and the slick water frack seemed to having a, a pretty good response in this shale, and, and we call it the shale revolution. But economically, it drastically changed what the business was. The business before that Revolution was, uh, you know, drill inventory kind of poor. You didn't, you had an asset. You had good producing wells. You felt like you understood it. Maybe we can infill drill some vertical wells over here to the shale revolution, which was here's our acreage. And oh, by the way, we can put a horizontal well one mile by one mile in all this acreage across all of it, stack it horizontally and vertically. And just totally go after every square inch of this asset. And now the the drilling poor uh, industry and how they how investors saw the opportunity to put drill money ahead and and add production. It like drastically you know totally changed. All of a sudden, everyone's got more than enough drilling opportunities. Everyone seems to have acreage that can make oil because we can go horizontal and frack this stuff. And then the investment money came pouring into that. Trying to chase those economics, uh, kind of a plot twist. It didn't work out very well. Things started crashing in 2019 economically, started really showing their face, like, okay, we're not, it's not working out well uh on all the acreage, we gotta high grade some of this stuff. And by that time, boom, PE money kind of evacuates the business and says, okay, we're just like not gonna do more uh, of this and and then some some companies obviously are so pot committed uh, they're still doing it but a lot of that money's not really coming back I mean I, I thought some of your stuff and certainly your your reference to uh, how do you say that guy's name the
1: the one on the podcast oh the gentleman's name is Adam Wattres and Wachtress. so he's a investment banker uh, based out of Calgary and uh, he had emerged as an acquisition business running there and I believe he still does. And he was one of the, uh, earlier guys who was talking about, uh, peak Permian and, uh, the concept that there was a structural change within the industry, uh, since about 2009 or so. Um, so uh, he's actually uh, on the energy council podcast and I, I recommend everybody actually listens to that because Adam, he has a really good understanding. I think of, uh, how to connect a lot of the more nuanced aspects of the industry to the really, really uh, core basics. And a lot of time, that's a really great area for people thinking on the business side of things. But uh, he has a really good understanding of it. And you know, if, you, if you'd like, pretty much go over it a little bit quickly of uh, what he talked about to give some context to where I come in. If that's yeah. fine with you guys. No, please, Evan. I uh, I just yeah. tried to set up kind of
0: generally what we were talking about today in this podcast. Perfect. Cool
1: mm-hmm so uh just give you a brief bit about myself Um uh you know, i'm a petroleum geologist i've been a petroleum geologist since 2008 so that's when i graduated from university uh i grew up in uh, nova scotia canada and uh, went to st mary's and Dalhousie university kind of spent my time there they're kind of down the road from each other graduated in 2008 and i started working for a company called mgm energy and i'm not sure if People remember, but there was a show on Discovery Channel called "License to Drill," and the the company I started my career with, MGM Energy, uh, they were featured on that show. And what they were doing was exploring uh, the Mackenzie Delta for natural gas, primarily, you know, whatever oil could be found. Uh, uh, and that's in the Canadian North, a little bit uh, east of the. Uh, Alaskan North Slope. Now, it's a different basin system. Uh, It's more tertiary and it's more gas prone. But to give you an idea, this would have been uh, April 2008 when I started there. And that was kind of the peak of that major oil price um, climb that we had pre 2010. And this was particularly interesting because it was just on the cusp of the horizontal drilling uh, revolution. And I mean, nobody really could have predicted how quickly things will have changed. You know, like like I said, MGM, the company I was working for, was looking for gas in the Canadian Arctic, right? With the expectation that, uh, gas would be shipped via a yet to be unbuilt and still unbuilt uh, pipeline called the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline. So, you know, this is where my career started and it's a frontier exploration, uh, play. And, uh, you know, nobody's looked really at that area since, right? Mm. So, and uh, yeah, so I started my career there. And then I went, uh, you know, like all the other young geologists, uh, once the crash happened, they uh, we were told it's, you know, time to move on. So I moved back to Nova Scotia, worked as a geophysicist for a little bit, uh, doing some gravity magnetics, works on salt bodies, worked for the GSC for a little bit, uh, you know, mapping the Laurentian fan. And then made my way back to Alberta and started my uh, career uh, uh, kind of over again in uh, Calgary. for What about, year was that? That would have been 2011. Okay. So at the beginning of 2011. Yeah. So things had picked up. Right. And a gentleman who uh, became a mentor of mine uh, had just called me and said, Hey, man, I, you need to get back out here. You've got a lot of uh, you know, opportunity out here. It's time to get back and start building your career again. And, uh, this gentleman had actually, uh, been the chief geologist, one of the founders of a company called Seven Gen. And these guys were some of the people who really started looking at a major play up in, uh, North, uh, East Alberta, sorry, Northwest Alberta, Northeast British Columbia called the Montney. And which is, uh, a it's massive a, play fairway, uh, the Montney, the, Montney,
0: in that uh, part of the world. Montney, yeah. it's a shale, right?
1: Uh the money is difficult to kind of conceptualize as one play type it's it's mostly a siltstone it's got oh. some turbidite sandstones and then it's got some uh shoreface uh sandstones and uh it's it's a mixed bag of things um it's what's really it? really quite large what's the age of it triassic
2: whoa yeah, what are so, we, what are we looking at uh, here what's this picture
1: Okay, so that's actually of the uh, a paper I just helped put together for the CSEG, which we can tie into. Uh, that's about uh, that's a about that's a picture of a Carboniferous lacustrine shale in Nova Scotia, Canada. Actually, so that there is a paper, uh, not particularly a paper about the MA collapse, but uh, a paper about uh, understanding. Um, the uh, spatial variability and the concept of a variogram, which is a geostatistical concept that actually uh, helps you visualize and capture statistically spatial continuity and uh, similarity within uh, any data set that you might be working with. So uh, I uh, sent that to the CSCG back in January. I've actually I had a pretty uh, positive response, but that particular rock section there you're looking at, I'm fairly certain is carboniferous lacustrine uh shale and the gentleman actually in that photo is uh, my father David E Brown and he was a uh, you know he's could been quite a successful petroleum geologist himself and a really large reason why I got into the industry there so nice uh, i was wondering man those,
0: i always wonder you yeah. know what what brought you to the rocks mm-hmm.
1: you had your dad yeah my um my father is one of those guys who lives and breathes this stuff and he was um a former mobile geologist and then he became a, a geologist and eventually the chief geologist for the canadian offshore petroleum board uh helping develop uh, some of the stuff in nova scotia offshore nova scotia which is uh pretty uh difficult geology actually it's a uh, salt uh, dominated pa- passive margin and you know i always wish good things for it but there's uh you know it's quite a large margin and you know the exploration has been a bit limited so i think uh could be some time before there are any major discoveries there, but we'll see.
0: Seems like this thing's edged by like a some kind of oxidation event or something. What's this red ring that goes around kind of the hole?
1: It, it could be. So what you're looking at there is probably. Well, uh, I would suspect it, it could be just sediment from the uh, above draining down. The uh, the Carboniferous in Nova Scotia is uh, pretty tectonically active. Oh man, uh, zone uh, time. It was kind of a trans-tensional base, small basin that uh, got wrenched apart and went through a number of cycles. Eventually, dried up, and uh, you had a lot of sub-basins and smaller lacustrine fasces And then you had, uh, you know, a lot of evaporitic sequences in the subsurface. And,
0: uh, in the subsurface, where this is—is yeah. is this productive?
1: Uh, perhaps, so it's actually one of the things I'm working on right now, uh, is looking at a small basin, uh, that there's been some fairly significant gas shows and some oil shows and some core, uh, Nova Scotia is not the most friendly place to onshore exploration right now. Well, I should say on uh, fracking. Um, so it's been a little overlooked by, uh, investors and not without good reason f- because, you know, it's, um, You know, a lot of what you need to develop now only works if you have a frack. But uh, these Horton Group shales uh, are, you know, like most lacustrine shales, they tend to have a very uh, high uh, total organic content. And uh, one of the analogs is called a Frederick shale, and that's a little further west in New Brunswick. And that had been looked at for some time as a potential uh, fracking uh, target. And... uh, Again, mostly the political climate hasn't been too conducive to it. But um, there's this basin, the Carboniferous Basin in uh, eastern Canada does have some potential. Um, one of the largest structures, undrilled structures in North America is something called Old Harry. And <laughs> off the top of my head, Old Harry, if it was drilled and contained oil, that it was it has been suspected of it would be probably the largest north american conventional discovery since Prudhoe bay what? i think it's 5 it's 5 billion barrels in place and 10 tcf of gas or 5 billion recoverable possible i have to redouble check those numbers but the structure itself is about 30 kilometers long and 14 kilometers Holy across shit. and old harry as, old harry yeah put that in your notes and check it out at <laughs> called corridor resources was looking at that, wow! But, um, Is it all leased up? Uh, unfortunately, no one's really looking at it right now because the Quebec government has kind of decided that it's in their interest. And again, politics—it sits quite literally in the middle of the Gulf of Saint Lawrence, so it's—you could call it offshore Quebec, offshore Newfoundland, offshore. Nova Scotia, if you're looking at the Cape Breton side of things, wow. or offshore or PEI, and then there's a group of islands which the French have territorial claims over, which is uh, rather close too. Yeah, so yeah. politically, it's not the best thing to run after. So it's a very unfortunate thing. Well,
0: yeah, so, yeah. Politics usually tie things up, but you know they're not completely dumb because uh, they're no, they're just I mean, they're waiting for when it's like. Oh, it's going to make us like trillions of dollars. Okay, now it's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's let people in here and drill. But, you know, the politicians tend to wait until it's like really desperate or really worth it. And it's so obvious they kind of let the doors open, at least my opinion. Uh, So so talk
1: the Quebec one maybe into that.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll find out. Time will tell. Time will tell. Uh, that's a yep. cool. That's fun facts about old Harry. I like that uh, Stan's brother's name's Harry. That's why yep. I said old Harry. Oh um, wow! Well. Uh, Harry, so, he's younger so, than me. Come, uh, come to us with kind of the intro of your paper and your work here uh, that we're working that we're looking at. Um, just kind of walk through some of the basics and and kind of tee us up of generally what you're talking about here in the introduction and and the, you know the main points from this paper.
1: Okay. All right. So I'll give the overview there of what Adam was talking about because it's a little key to what we're, uh, this, my paper. And so Adam, you know, was one of her voices calling for the peak Permian. And I guess, you know, as we mentioned earlier, developed, was one of the people who developed uh, uh, the idea that there was a structural change in the industry, which seems really apparent, uh, you know, looking backwards, going from, you know, uh, industry dominated by non conventional, I'm sorry, conventional oil plays. To one dominated by conventional place. and his thesis was, you know, really straightforward: that the uh, North American industry developed an investment model to deal with the reality that uh, dis- uh, discoveries and production in North America had been in a rather terminal decline. So, from you know, I think it was what the nineteen seventies until around two thousand eight, and you know, geologists this is really kind of figure out, you know, the lowest hanging fruit is usually picked off first, uh, and you know, declining uh, expiration success. You know, usually follows from there, and uh, so Adam called this the uh, scarcity investment model, and uh, essentially he was arguing that what had developed from the scarcity model was a mergers and acquisition investment uh, model that uh, took advantage of this. Right, and uh, as no surprise to any of you guys. Uh, I'm sure you know that bigger companies can be a little bit unfocused. They can, you know, kind of have this mass momentum in a particular direction. And sometimes they're not always the best uh, developer non-core assets. Yeah. Adam developed the, and helped kind of flesh out the idea that what had existed in North America since the peak of uh, discoveries and production in the 1970s was a mergers and acquisition model that, uh, was allowed larger companies to build on their reserve base uh, and also reduce their risk. And so how that worked was uh, mergers and acquisition investment model that uh, works as follows: where larger companies would spin out their non-core assets to smaller junior companies, and these smaller junior companies, uh, you know, w- would be staffed by you know good management teams. Uh, who you know had very specialized geoscientists uh, knew how to exploit um, you know enhanced product, uh, enhanced recovery. So they're really really good at blending together a geoscience understanding with the enhanced recovery uh, to really find you know the overlooked uh, reserves or uh, you know tease out uh, you know uh, a better way to produce what was already discovered. So these smaller hmm. companies would uh, would or were not generally. Uh, develop the uh, assets up to about you know ten thousand, twenty thousand barrels a day, and they would get bought out by mid-sized companies. And these mid-sized companies would then further prove up the asset and you know uh, develop it further. And then what would happen is then the larger companies would buy these assets with the idea that it was easier to buy oil than it was to discover and develop it. And the the core takeaway here is that the reason that this was uh, a useful model was because it limited risk. That smaller companies and smaller assets, uh, they would, you know, they would prevent a contagion, right? So not everybody would be running after something that was, you know, inherently unproductive or bad management teams would get spun out, and you know, they wouldn't be able, you know, uh, to survive very long. So it was, it was just a de-risking process within the industry, and you know, these uh, what had happened was. That this was obviously drill, driven by you know poor drilling results and low amounts of drilling inventory you know and you know ten to hundred uh, drill locations you know two years worth of drilling inventory, and this you know continued on up until the shale revolution happened and you know once this uh, shale revolution really happened as you said earlier you know a lot of these companies went from being drill location poor to drill location rich, and. You know, a lot of smaller companies, you know, were kind of caught with their pants down, and you know, had no way to develop the rest of their assets because investors had looked at these smaller companies not as a way to generate income from dividends, uh, you know, or some sort of profit payout, but rather as like a capital gain. So that the idea is that you you develop this company and then you get bought out, and the investors are rewarded, right? So Adam essentially argued, "Yep, this all eventually ended," you know, uh, in around two thousand eight. And what had happened uh, was that around 2014, that crash. When things started picking up again, a lot of people as expected that. Okay, well, we've got you know some some money coming back into the system. We're going to have uh, mergers and acquisition uh, market become healthy again, and there's going to be you know a lot of picking up of uh, smaller companies and assets. And that actually never happened. Uh, the velocity of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, those transactions never, uh, never came back. And, wow. you know, what Adam had argued is that this was a structural decline in the industry that was really, really, uh, you know, sending a fundamental message that, you know, things had changed and that, you know, the way business was conducted, uh, no longer, uh, was the same as it had been for the last 40 years, right? So. You know, we went through that period of time, and we had that you know short down downturn. And what had happened was that these uh, these companies, you know, they were making I think it was about eight to ten percent uh, uh, profit margins in a hundred dollar barrel environment. And then they had to uh, you know re you know start drilling again in a new environment from the about as I say two thousand uh, sixteen to two thousand you know nineteen twenty. Uh, price environment, which was you know fifty to sixty dollars a barrel, and what he had argued, and I think was uh, apparent to many people, you know, and you mentioned it earlier, was that these companies uh, were not able to you know be particularly profitable; that they were just barely meeting their uh, cost of capital at two to three dollars a barrel. Uh, sorry, two to three percent at uh, fifty to sixty dollars a barrel, and that the narrative that the industry had put forward. Was that, well, we're profitable because technology is allowing us to be more efficient and uh, we're able to better exploit uh, the resources that uh, the technology, you know, with this technology. So I looked at this, and uh, one of the things that that jumped out at me right away when I was, you know, talking with a bunch of people was that when the MA cycle collapsed, also what collapsed with it, and this is not something that Adam had realized. Uh, it's more something I brought to the, the head was that the de-risking process for the geological concepts that uh, oil companies were using was also gone. So what was in effect, we were entering like a new era of, uh, you know, uh, having to think about geology and the way that we would, you know, move bad ideas out of the way and de-risk concept and, you know, evaluate risk that was also gone because that left with the mergers and acquisition market. And, uh, I'm sure I don't need to tell you guys that, you know, the last decade or so has been a really rough time to be a petroleum geologist because it's been a really uncertain, uh, position within the company, uh, within the, the companies, because, you know, there uh, uh, this shale revolution, at least at first, you know, kind of, uh, presented itself as a way that geological risk was much lower uh for oil and gas companies and you know i think now we know that's not correct but uh at the time i'm sure you guys remember around 2000 like you know 9 10 11 12 that a lot of the idea was like well uh these shale plays are rather homogeneous you know we can we have an idea of how to work it. So now it's just keeping the cost down
0: mm-hmm. so i was just about to it, ask
1: yeah go ahead i mean if you have a comment on that absolutely go right ahead well you can kind of see there See there. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking to myself while you were explaining all that, you know, really well, we are, we, we, we realized that we put a lot of time and a lot of effort into the engineering side and uh, a little bit on the geology maybe of, of kind of what's going on with these these systems. But certainly it was, it was heavily engineering driven on, uh, during 25 to 2020, uh, 2015 to 2020, when profit margins went to 2 to 3% uh, percent, and the barrels seemed to be stagnant at uh, at maybe 50 55 on average for several years it was how fa- how much faster can we drill how are we going to get these stages from you know 30 foot stages to 150 or right we uh, complexity and and fracking uh, efficiency it was it was heavily cost 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 and uh we need to we need to keep proving the reserves right we don't want to say that these uh, all this acreage isn't good cuz that's what we thought in the beginning and now that prices are stressing us and the reality that you know all acreage isn't good you have your sweet spots and you have places to stay away from that was all kind of showing its face in in this 2 to 3% profit margins but now you know we're back and so we we did that we've experienced you know the the stresses of low profit margins and becoming incredibly efficient or as efficient as we possibly can at uh, at drilling costs and completion costs at 2 to 3% margins but now i would say we've bounced back and we're going to be at plus $100 oil for a ser- a pretty foreseeable future like the demand is not going away the roaring twenties of our time are certainly appear to be here for and so I think you got a healthy healthy price. You're at that eight to ten percent margins, or you could even argue that the what was discovered economically on the engineering side in the two to three percent, it's probably now making this even
1: more. Would you would you argue that logically now? Well, I, I would hope so. I, I think we're going to have pretty good times right now. And uh, what's what my concern is, you know, is that the the North American industry is going to lean really heavily on about three things. It's going to lean heavily on the Permian. It's going to lean, lean he- as heavy as it can based on the amount of takeaway capacity on the heavy oil in northern Alberta, mm. and then it's going to lean, you know, uh, kind of almost equally on the Montney, which is massive. You know, it's truly huge, uh, huge, uh, um, uh, play and the Eagle Ford, like, I think still got a lot of life in it, but, um, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of profitability, uh, moving forward, especially in the Permian, the Permian, uh, you know, is definitely a very, very special place. I, um, you know, with its close proximity to, you know, infrastructure and the way the plays are stacked, right? I mean, it's, you know, if anything is going to work, uh, you know, in, uh, the United States, it's going to be the Permian
0: and the earthquake know, problem. Think- what are your, what's your take on the, uh, the earthquakes and how they're going to manage their, their situation there? I mean, it-
1: yeah. I mean, I think that's one area that, the uh, geophysics community, I think they can get back into the game, and that's that's one community that's I think got a little bit uh, pushed out, and we're going to really need them back. Here's uh, uh, you know because you know the idea you can see there that's that's actually the image I was going to ask you. So you're you've got a good foresight. Um, that large yellow area there is the montney. Okay. And. So it's truly huge. To give you an idea of how big that is, that's from like Corpus Christi to probably Roswell. That's huge. That's how big. What? It is. And, yeah. Yeah. So no, that's what right.
2: seven hundred kilometers or so. So what? What's the age of that?
0: Jurassic. Triassic. Triassic.
2: Yeah.
1: And what you haven't read there was actually the uh, if you remember the movie Syriana, that's the Tengeese. That's a massive, supergiant uh, reef uh, that's found in the Caspian Sea. It's one of the largest conventional oil fields in the world. I think it's like the fifth largest or something like that. And that's actually a little bit bigger than it is in reality. It just, you know, like when I was making the graphic, I was like, well, I can't make it too much smaller. And then we have in the blue is a play called the Duvernay, which is you could probably say is analogous to the Eagle Ford. It's an inter-reef uh, shale. That uh, is, uh, you know, gas and liquids prone. And in the east, closer to uh, Calgary and Red Deer, those areas there, it's more oil prone. But uh, those are the major unconventional, non-heavy oil plays in Alberta. And it just gives you a sense of the size. And the important point to take away here is that, you know, when you, uh, when us geoscientists, we think of these plays, like there's, a, you know, there's a lot of questions that we ask. There's a lot of, you know, You know, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, in these, you know, these giant plays. But a lot of people within the industry, uh, people who are investors, people who are, you know, allocating capital, um, you know, when they see these things, the main questions that they want answered are mostly answered. And that is, you know, where is the oil? Like, you know, know, is our drilling location good or bad, right? um, They don't think typically too much further past that when you're not doing developments infrastructure.
0: And, you know, you got to think infrastructure, your roads in and out of there, you're in Canada and you probably can't work in the winters too
1: well. So you got, well, like that's what most of went the drilling's done, actually, believe it or not. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ice roads and there's a lot of um, infrastructure put in there. It, wow. It, it is so you part got, of the
0: cost. You got infrastructure. How deep is this, uh, is this target like the Motney for example, or the Duvernay? What, how deep is that?
1: Uh, it depends which part you're targeting. Uh, I would say convert to C, so 3,000 to like 7,000 to 10,000. Nice, C or so.
0: nice. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. in line. Uh, and yeah. the gravity of oil—are they expected gravity of oil that's
1: coming out of this? It, it depends. So one of the things that's actually interesting is that the these places have kind of different types of uh, hydrocarbons, right? And they're not exactly sure of what the source for the Montney is, whether it's in part self-sourced or if it comes from a formation called Doig that l- overlays it, but it's generally light. Like they produce a lot of condensate, uh, out of, uh, mm. out of the Montney, And then, uh, similar to the DuBernay, uh, if in the West, it's condensate. Wow. And then in, and then in the East, it's a light oil. like high
0: 40s in the in the east
1: yeah it's fairly light and i mean one of the things i have to say about that is like the actual reality of that uh you get when you're trying to determine what type of hydrocarbons you can produce sometimes you get a little bit of a biased result because of the hydrocarbons they will be mobilized through your porosity and permeability so there's a especially with the Montney, there's a high chance that there's you know some heavier hydrocarbons in some of these zones sure uh, i know near gordondale they produce uh a um you know more of the black oil and everything like that but uh yeah it's one of those things where it's actually a point i was going to bring up and i'm glad you did that you know uh you know I, I follow a lot of this stuff very very closely and i was meeting with a mentor when i was in calgary and we were chit-chatting and i said you know i'm a little embarrassed to say but I'm not entirely sure what the source rock for the Montney is, right? <laughs> it's probably and, a serpentinite. I'm just going to throw it out there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that got a big yeah, laugh out complex. of it.
0: That's right. Well, there's a mm. bunch of serpentinite all through here. That's for sure. Yeah, and, it's
1: but yeah, it's it's a difficult problem, right? Like the, the industry's been go, go 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 go. Yeah, but It's right?
0: a shale. It's a serpentinite source shale.
1: Well, yeah, well, the the, the, mont- the mountain is just a big, thick sedimentary. Uh, it's like a like a passive margin, right? Because you can imagine that these there's nothing here on the west, right? The, these mountains and everything hadn't accreted yet. They hadn't they hadn't, uh, they like hadn't the moved into position. Yeah, right. in the Triassic. Wow. So Alberta, the geology of Alberta you can think of very very simply as it was a massive carbonate bank. That then opened to open ocean from the Cambrian all the way, or oh, probably earlier too, all the way to about the Triassic and then wow. uh, Jurassic. And then then it just started to close up because you had the mountains form. And then the foreland basin there um uh, allow uh started to, you know, uh, fill in with the sediments from the western interior seaway, which then retreated in a lot of different directions. And one of the ways that retreated was towards the uh the the north uh, east there and those uh, fluvial channels uh, form what we know as the heavy oil sands the, uh, uh, Mont- the McMurray formation and some of the other uh, Cretaceous sands uh, associated with that so uh, Alberta geology can be can be comp- can be very complex um, but it's very very interesting but it's uh, it's uh, like everything else um, when we came into the unconventional world. You know we, we, uh, we you know we were being asked as geoscientists we were being asked to provide answers to questions that most of us really didn't even know existed or how to articulate right mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I argue in my paper is like you know a lot of the ways that you know us geoscientists were useful we had to relearn how to be useful again. And I had friends who were investment bankers who in 2000, 14 you know basically tell me it's like we don't really need you geologists anymore and you know we just need to know where the shale is tell us where we can drill it and we'll just figure out the numbers right and <laughs> good luck that. man yeah, yeah they don't luck. say that anymore that's right but that that was the interesting perception and even more so for geophysicists right oh, and yeah. geophysicists you know i think are going to play a much larger role here moving forward because uh, the last ten years, my big fear is that we ripped through as much of our tier one acreage as fast as we could without really understanding it, yep. and that we're going to have to make the most of our tier two acreage here. Yeah, and and to do that, and uh, what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to really reconcile uh, one of the one of the areas where geologists and geophysicists work together, and that's. This really, really basic problem of we have very, very good high resolution vertical data and much poor, much more poor uh, resolution data in the horizontal, right? And Mm -hmm. how do we tie that together, right? Mm -hmm. When, when the energy industry, you know, didn't really think we were all that important anymore and all they were trying to do is, you know, match decline curves over different Mm facies, you know, to figure out how many uh, wells per section to put in, you know, it made sense. Right. And one thing that Adam Watch was pointed out in his talk. And I think most people know is that our industry has a notorious lag effect where we do something, we'll drill a bunch of wells in an area and we'll start producing everything looks great. And then boom, especially, uh, with the unconventional things will drop off the face of the earth and you'll, your, your hydrocarbons will just stop flowing. Right. And, Why is that right? You know, and the industry is figuring it out now, and they're doing a much better job. But you know, uh, to understand why that is the case is where geologists are going to have to make themselves, you know, important again. And uh, you know, I say in the paper there, nobody's going to do that for us, right? We have to be able to argue our case. We have to be able to show why we're important, right? That's right. And I think that in this hundred dollar barrel oil. Period of time now, um, if we don't, if we go into it thinking, oh well, they're going to start giving us our jobs back. Or, you know, things are good; they're going to hire us back. I think that's foolish thinking. I mean, I'm not working as a geologist right now. I'm working on the completion side of things, and I'm making twice as much money as I was going to be making in Alberta as a uh, operations well site geosteering geologist, which is one of the jobs I was looking at. Right, mm-hmm. and. I don't feel particularly more useful in this role, but if they want to pay me what they're paying me, I'm more than happy to do it. <laughs> well, that's right. That's the reality of it. And that's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's all shifting back. I agree.
0: And then you got, you got an interesting uh, story developing for sure uh, in general with the Montney and this Duvernay and how large this is and appears to be, you know, attackable. Um, but, oh, it's, go ahead. Sorry. Um, what we learned in, Blowing through so called tier one acreage and, and then actually sitting and really thinking about tier two acreage and how we can make that more successful. Looking back at tier one and going, okay, yeah, we pull it way too fast. We're not exactly sure, you know, how the hydrocarbons are coming out of this system and why it's changing. We can attack that. But you go into a fresh area like this with all that kind of new, Ideas that have really been worked out in the in in the so-called kind of failures of the Permian, um, you attack this area. You need geophysics. You need you need mag and you need geophysics in a large area. We know that really helps. So, is that something that's already been done out here? Are there companies looking at this to start collecting that data, getting
1: prepared for this?
2: Well, yeah, actually, um,
1: uh, the one thing Alberta does very well. Is focus on geoscience um, the, uh, the the geoscience in the montney is you know has been for a little while now, but more so recently under great you know focus within the industry. Um, you know the reason this play works is not only because it's you know vast in size, but also that uh, be- because of the economic reality of working in British Columbia and Alberta that. Uh, There's not as much room for error, and and there's a much higher cost. And uh, private equity and capital will just leave uh, Western Canada because if you know if there's a lot of mistakes or things are being carelessly done, um, you know the the Permian I think is a bit more forgiving uh, for investments, and you know a lot of the Canadian rigs that were you know you know the you know very very busy joined Duvernay and Montney wound up in um, wound up in the Permian. And then, you know, it, that was the right, right decision to make, because uh, there has been a, uh, you know, it's not always the most forgiving environment. And, you know, uh, Alberta does do a really good job of, you know, pushing the geoscience and everything like that. But um, like everything else, it's, you know, the that needs to be really pushed by uh, the geoscience community, uh, all the time, because if you let off the gas, um, I feel like you know companies because of the profitable environment will just uh, keep moving forward, and uh, you know there's always the push for efficiency, which isn't a bad thing. Um, and I'll use an example of you know this type of thinking uh, in the paper that I had written. One of the uh, the in the tit- what I titled "It's Still the Rocks." I use the example of a paper written in 2017 by. Uh, uh by MIT uh, uh by Montgomery and O'Sullivan and this paper had you know essentially argued um that you know we need to untangle the uh the influence of technology and uh favorable geology right and it's like well how are we going to do that right and it one of the tools it used was data creating, which is you know uh I don't Offshoot uh, downstream of variograms, and what was really really interesting about that paper is that they were looking at some of the statistical methods for evaluating the the productivity and the influence of technology versus geology that have been made by uh, others under other industry participants. One of them being the uh, EIA, right? And the EIA used a uh, statistical model to evaluate uh, the influence of technology. That was a simple regression model that uh, essentially took the mean of the productivity of a county and applied it. Right. So to put the, to put that in English, essentially, what they were saying is that you take a county, you say, well, this is Second Bone Spring, and I don't know any county, right? So we're going to get the mean of uh, the productivity for these wells all these walls together and that's what we're gonna use to weigh the influence of the geology versus technology. And what this MIT paper discovered was that this overestimated the influence of technology by a factor of two, right? Mm -hmm. And greatly, greatly uh, uh, underestimated the influence of geology and the the practice of high grading uh, your drilling locations. So, what is the real takeaway here is that this was around 2016 and 17, and the EIA was using a very, very basic statistical model and saying, you know, this is a productivity we can expect, and this is the factors that we're, we expect to see pushing productivity. And the EIA basically said that the geoscience was almost a non-factor. And if you actually scroll down, you can actually see their model. If you scroll down a little bit, I'll tell you when you're there. Yeah, here we go. So, you can see the one circled there. Right in green, so that's the statistical model the EIA use. And if you scroll down to the next page, you'll be able to see the uh, bar graph that the uh, MIT paper uh, shows. There we go. Okay, so the FE model there. So as you can see there, the uh, model with uh, almost all purple and blue, uh, I think is that FE model, and we can see pretty clearly what's weighing the uh, the what's influencing. Uh, productivity increases in the uh, production of oil and gas. Prop and water, and, man. Prop and water, and so this is this is what the EI put out, and you know, I'm not a brilliant guy, but any, stretch of the, you know, I'm not a statistician or anything like that, you know, and you know, I this jumped out at me that this paper was written, and it, you know that it didn't, you know, create a huge stir in the industry, that you know the major energy regulator was basically saying, yeah, mean, geology, yeah, whatever. I'm like. <laughs> okay then, yeah, <laughs> you know, and so as geoscientists, how do we then, you know, how do we then push our position, right? Well, right. we need to be, we need to understand what's actually going on, right? And we have to be able to argue that guys like, you know, this entire process where we used to have value when we were in this M&A cycle and, you know, being part of this de-risking and improving that process, you know, we're not part of it anymore, right? And geologists used to play an oversized role in these smaller and mid-sized companies, and they don't exist as much anymore. and now uh, you know one of the things that happened is that when companies are looking where they were looking to uh, to capitalize themselves, they had to do it through debt based instruments that so were reserve-based lending right and hmm. you know it, you how do you quantify the risk in a lending uh, in a debt uh, lending product for um, a play that is not fundamentally understood on a geological level. Right. And so this caused major problems, you know, within the industry that, you know, you have proved and uh, developing, uh, you know, proved and undeveloped and unproved undeveloped resources. Right. So how do you assign a risk to that? Right. And, you know, the geoscience community, I think, unfortunately was sitting on their hands a little bit afraid to really push our position. Right. But, yeah. you know, there was a huge need for it because, understanding risk and quantifying risk for the last 10 years there was major mistakes all over the place and you know we're at a position now where i think we're in tier two acreage uh, in a lot of cases and we're drilling really good wells you know i'm sure you guys have had the guys from star steer on um you know geosteering wells you know with a lot of petrophysics and everything like that so we're we're putting out ten thousand foot laterals you know drilling with lots of technology and attention to detail and we're really not doing too much better for lateral flux. right and that's a question worth, worth answering and worth really thinking about it and a lot of people are but you know i mean i think there's a lot of people who just kind of uh, accepted that oh my job as a geologist is going to be to be a mud logger or a geosteering geologist or if i'm super lucky i can be an off sky or maybe do some development and I think, you know, the role of the geologist is going to be uh, understanding why, uh, being understanding and being able to argue why certain things worked, why certain things didn't, what small changes you can make to things that uh, didn't work, make those work. And also to be, you know, kind of in the the forefront of what comes next, because the, uh, you know, the, the amount of energy that's going to be needed is absolutely, you know, huge and, it's um the reserve replacement ratio for conventional resources I think is about 10 to 20 percent you know and that's uh that's pretty low and there's just limits to what uh, can be done with the Permian and there's limits to what can be done with the oil sands right you know the Bakken and the Eagle Ford is going to require a lot of effort to keep uh, production steady uh the Montney's got huge growth potential but we can't just rely on the Montney, uh, the Eagle Ford uh, and um, the Permian, right? Right. And, uh, the oil.
0: Well, so. I, that's and that's a good place to roll, kind of uh, right into the probably the completion part of this. I mean, we really drove down into. Your argument and, and the facts and, and how you've compiled a lot of this information. And it, yeah, the, you gotta oversimplify. Well, you gotta, what appears to be a complex, but at the end of the day, kind of a simple statistical approach is like, ah, oh, just water and prop guys, like get after it. And then, and then they're looking over at the geologic complexity and they're like, ah, let's, let's run with like the super simple, like let's not get too complicated over there. And they're trying to merge those two kind of smoothed out models to make predictions with. And it's not, it's not working. I think you've done a great job explaining that and saying, okay, now what? Let's take a step back. What are we really going to do? How do you get the the complexity of the reality of geology into that model? And we're still, we're, we're, we're really just scratching the surface on a lot of that stuff and making new discoveries on how to do something like that from the technical side of geology. So it's a, it's an interesting time. And then you got yep. you know the, the 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 need for it, and I think I totally agree with you that the need and the demand to 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 spend money and take the risk on new areas like the Montney or the Duvernay or expand into new technologies and new ideas in the Permian or the Eagleford or the Bakken, like the money is going to come in. How do you see, and where do you think, or where are you predicting the real growth? from, you can argue, you know, billions of dollars starting to make make their way back into North American oil and gas development, um, because the demand is, is there and, and all the arguments that it's coming. You know, what do you think, where do you see things blowing up, in your opinion, in the next five years?
1: Well, in North America, I mean, I, I can tell where I'd like to see it blowing up. I'd, I'd love to see California get a lot more investment. Uh, my friend Mike Umbro is uh, doing a great job trying to change things up there, but uh, I have to be realistic about politics, you know. And, you know, realistically, I, I think the Premier is going to be a strong player. It's going to continue to be a very, very strong player. Um, I think the, the plays that exist right now, uh, the unconventional plays, it's, you know, it's going to be the biggest, the top three is essentially you've got your Alberta heavy oil. You've got uh, your Permian and you've got your Alberta Deep Basin, which is, you know, uh, what the, uh, the Montney is. These are going to dominate the unconventionals. Now, what I think is going to happen and what I didn't think was going to happen even uh, four or five years ago was I think uh, machine learning and uh, AI is going to become very, very useful for picking up uh, prospects in the Uh, more frontier areas, like things like the offshore and more conventional plays. Uh, I'd seen a couple papers and saw some presentations, which actually one of them was rather quickly scrubbed from the internet. I'm not sure why, about how uh, AI and machine learning uh, are becoming very useful for DHI, so direct hydrocarbon indicators in the geophysics realm. And, And to really oversimplify it, essentially that you're looking for these DHIs and there's lots of direct hydrocarbon indicators and there's lots of reasons why a direct hydrocarbon indicator can be misleading uh you know the most popular one as you can imagine is your ABO amplitude versus offset and you know that can help you find your gas cap but it can be fizz gas there's a lot of complexity there right but what AI and machine learning has been doing is that it organizes these and discovers relationships and then uses like a statistical model and an algorithm to find the least likely combination of, of occurrences within a basin, right? Because if you think about it, if you've got a volume of fluid in a basin, what is probably the, the least likely thing you're going to find? Well, that's large deposits of hydrocarbons, right? I mean, there's going to be tons of water. There's going to be tons of like fizzy, low saturation gas. You know, there's going to be a lot of things there, but these really high-grade um, uh, reservoirs, That's your probably least likely occurrence when you look at a combination of DHIs and uh, structure. And so that, I think, is going to be really, really interesting taking off. But it's going to require that a lot of us geoscientists really understand a lot of the data science and the machine learning and the AI. And uh, a friend of mine and a colleague, somebody I've known for decades, uh, he was working on this at ExxonMobil, and he was another Nova Scotian. So, you know, and we talked about this a little bit and, you know, it, it does show some promise, but the industry just has to, you know, really, really start embracing uh, geoscience again and, you know, understand that, you know, w- what could happen is that, you know, we we could get in a situation where no matter how much we drill, things don't uh, keep pace with demand, right? I don't think that's likely, but it's something that I think is, Uh, possible needs to be considered Um, you know as far as other places for unconventionals uh, I mean I've worked on I think every play from in western North America from obviously the McKenzie Delta all the way down to here in Texas and I think uh, I think realistically uh, some of the shales in uh, the Quebec uh, look promising, although politically it's no good. Uh, the Kennel Shale, my old boss, uh, John Hogue, uh, he had uh, written a little about that, and that's in the Northwest Territories. And then um, there's some other interesting stuff in uh, in Mexico. And, of course, I think Argentina, uh, Nevada, the dead cow shale, I think that's what it translates into in English. Uh, I think that's got some great potential too. Um, I think the North American industry is really, you know, learning and really becoming absolutely fantastic exploiting these. So once we really start to branch out from our core North American assets, I'd be really interested to see where we go next. I mean, Argentina, Australia are the the ones that I think have the the best potential um, and most likely uh, where the industry will end up winding up. And, you know, I've heard some talk about even in uh, the Middle East that there's uh, some uh, good uh unconventional plays but uh tom's gonna tell but it's gonna yeah. be a geoscience project and uh, i'm excited to see where it goes you know i'm i'm happy that people are making money again and that uh, right. you know it's, they'll be able to ha- translate that into some research
0: yep it's gonna go no uh, i think for sure i think we can hang our hats on it's gonna go uh it's just how how's it gonna go i'm i'm really really interested and it's an exciting time to kind of just follow along and see what happens and see where the super majors go and see where the large operators that are trying to become super majors. And, and maybe when some of these ma- massive mergers that could potentially be uh, in the near future that we
1: can see unfold and and happen. But uh, that, one of the things that I had found very, very useful in my career, especially when I kind of found myself, well, I guess, you know, on the outside a little bit, you know, you always feel like everyone else is doing great stuff when you're just doing your job and you feel like it's boring is that just read papers, do the reading and just start writing down things you recognize, write down things you're sort of familiar with, and then just start asking questions about the things you have no idea about. Nice. And that's how, you know, you know, I've had a, you know, a fair bit of success and it's right just on. being curious.
0: That's and- right, man. That's right. Got to feed that curiosity. Right, right on Evan, Thank you, man, for uh, for recording this and and coming on and bringing this uh, all to the forefront for us to to chew on, man. I really appreciate you sharing your time.:
1: well, I appreciate everything you guys do for our industry. So thanks so much.